You know, I was at a restaurant early this morning, and I go into the same restaurant uh, often early on Sunday mornings, dressed in a coat and tie, or not a coat, but a tie and shirt, uh, uh, kind of preparing for this time. And, and as, I, as I went in there, the, the waitress says, ah, you have to work on Sunday too, huh? And she'd said that to me before, but she says, it's the pits, isn't it? And you know, it made me realize, no, it's not. And I said, you know, without even thinking, it really isn't so bad. And you know, I guess it was a reflection of really enjoying being with you. You're a great church, and I, it's a joy for me to be here with you and to share these moments. Have you ever written a personal mission statement? I could ask you to raise your hands. I don't think I'll do that. But a mission statement shares what we believe to be our reason for being and is a guide for determining what we do with the time that we're given here on this good planet Earth. In the movie Jerry Maguire, the character Jerry is played by Tom Cruise, and he's a greedy sports agent who has a dark night of the soul and changes his reason for doing business and thus the way he carries out his job. He writes a mission statement resolving that agents should be less concerned about money and more concerned about the lives of their clients. After being fired for his convictions, he lives out his beliefs by starting his own company. On that ominous night, when he wrote his mission statement, McGuire is in his room, if you remember the scene. He's unable to sleep, having a crisis of conscience. As the narrator, he says, I couldn't escape one simple thought. I hated myself. No, that's not where it was. I hated my place in the world. McGuire then slouches down on the floor with a faraway look in his eyes and says, I had so much to say and no one to listen. He turns to his laptop computer and then it happened. It was the oddest, most unexpected thing, he says. I began writing what they call a mission statement. Not a memo, a mission statement. A suggestion for the future of our company. He begins to type. A night like this doesn't come often. I seized it. Suddenly, I was my father's son again. I was remembering the simple pleasures of the job. How I ended up here out of law school. The way a stadium sounds when one of my players does well. The way we were meant to protect them in health and injury. With so many clients, I had forgotten what was important. Today we're going to look at another dark night of despair experienced by seven men many years ago. In an amazingly effective manner, their mission statement is given to them. As I read from John 21, verses 1 through 14, consider the fact that this last chapter of John's gospel, as was true for the last words of the other gospels, is to commission the disciples to carry out the mission that God has for each one of them. If you would, follow along with me as I read from John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. 
If you have a Bible, please follow along with me or a pew Bible or on the screen. Listen for the word of the Lord. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples. And again, this is Jesus in his post-resurrection form. They're by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. When the disciple whom Jesus loved, and that was John, the author, said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you've caught, just, you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. May God add his blessing, understanding, and also this morning his application as we continue to think about the passage which we've just read. Please join me in prayer. God, we're grateful for this morning. We are glad to be here, and we are here to worship you. And I pray that as we think about these words that we've just read and as we try to apply them, I pray that somehow you might receive the honor and the glory, and I pray that we might hear a fresh and a new word from you. Or if it isn't fresh and new, at least a word that we need to hear that we've heard before. God, I pray that you would speak to the people and the preacher alike today. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. In verses 1 through 3 of this passage, even though Peter and six of the other disciples have encountered the risen Lord, they retreat to their past and the place that was familiar to them. The previous post-resurrection appearances of Jesus took place in the area of Jerusalem at the Garden Cemetery, as well as the upper room. Probably a couple weeks have passed since Jesus had appeared to his excited yet bewildered disciples. They all believed that he'd done the unthinkable. I mean, he had risen from the dead, which was something that was beyond their understanding, but he had moved triumphantly from death to life. The problem for them in this new reality could have been 
that he had not appeared to them in some time. After all, um, and, and there were no assurances that he was going to come at any other time. So after all of that happened, they deliberately needed for him to be with them. I mean, they weren't sure what they were to do next. They hadn't received their marching orders. Was he going to set up a kingdom? Would it be military? Would it be political? What was he going to do? Now, in the next chapter, actually the, the first chapter of Acts, we find that Jesus tells them uh, what he's going to do. But at this point, at this juncture, there must have been a real sense of uneasiness about what was to happen next. All or most of the disciples had returned up there to the northern part of, of Israel and Galilee. They would be safer up there, away from uh, the religious leaders in, in uh, Jerusalem. And there were familiar surroundings up there. That was home to them. Never one to wait around for anything. Peter seems to take the initiative. I like the way Peter does this. He simply says, I'm going out to fish. And six of the other disciples say, we'll go with you. Now, some would think that it was kind of a therapeutic thing. It was a respite. It was kind of an R&R for them, doing what they knew best. It would be a good physical workout, giving them a chance to work out some of the kinks that they experienced uh, as they had gone through so much stress since Good Friday. They knew Galilee well. And it would be so good to be out there again on that sea, which was usually peaceful. And they were going to do what they knew best. Others, however, would have a different take. Others would say that it was much more than that, that Peter was going back to the fishing business. He had a family to feed. While he'd signed on and followed Jesus, he never dreamed it would turn out like this. For all kinds of reasons... In Jesus' absence, Peter felt like an utter failure. The three-year time with Jesus was only a detour, and now he had to get back to business. He's going to start all over, and this is his first day of his new business. This week I did something that I don't usually do. Instead of working on this text and preparing like I usually do on Tuesday, I went to a meeting of pastors. And this meeting of pastors was uh, telling us about an event that's going to take place next April when Billy Graham's daughter, Ann Graham Lotz, is going to speak for a couple nights at the, at the convention center. And uh, there, Joel Stoll, uh, a former pastor, now author and university president, spoke, and guess what? <laughs> he spoke on this very passage. You can bet that I soaked it all in. Joe was convinced that Peter felt like a failure and in his frustration and his pain gave in to the pull to return to his old life. This was the first day back in the fishing business. He had waited long enough for Jesus. While we might think of Peter as being kind of impatient and fickle, you know, maybe we aren't too much different than Peter. We may have experienced God working in our lives in some miraculous ways in the past, but somehow the joy of following him has been squeezed out by some of the happenings of our lives. 
happenings that sometimes were bewildering and anxious. The fire of the passion that we once felt, that we first experienced when Jesus was working in our lives, seems to have grown cold. The mission statement we once lived by as we faithfully followed Jesus somehow feels like past history in light of the present. We've waited long enough for Jesus to show up again. We're going fishing. Sound familiar? If that's you today or me today, has our faith grown cold, stale? Are you running on fumes of the past, past experiences with Jesus? In verses 4 through 8, at the end of a long, dark night, Jesus, the risen Lord, encounters the disheartened disciples. In verse 4, we are told simply, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not recognize that it was Jesus. As was true from Jesus' birth on, in all of his encounters with people, he comes as Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. Once again, Jesus steps into their world, their situation in life, meeting them where they are. They might not know known of where to find him, but he certainly always knew where he could find them. And even though only a hundred yards off of shore, we're told, through the early morning mist or fog, and I've been there in that very place and know that in the morning there often is a mist coming off of the water, they didn't see him, and if they saw him, they didn't recognize him. They also didn't recognize Jesus' voice when he calls out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? Oh, that was a rhetorical question to be sure. He knows that on the first day of their new business, they have been skunked. Night fishing is one of the best times to cast their nets in those waters. They know Galilee. They know where the good places are too. And yet, in utter failure, they have to answer the voice from the shore by saying simply, no even though they've been out all night long. It kind of reminds me of the time when I went fishing with the outdoors editor of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, who was a member of our church in St. Louis. He was hoping to do a feature article on how a novice pastor who knows not much of anything can catch fish on one of Missouri's famous waterways. Well, the article never happened. Just like the disciples, although he was the one with all the expertise, he tried everything, but we caught zilch, probably so that he could rationalize uh, expensing the trip. He wrote one sentence about our fishless adventure at the end of a column a couple of months later. Jesus shouts out his instructions to the disciples, throw out your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Some scholars conjectured that from Jesus' vantage point, he could see a school of fish there in the opposite direction from where they were casting their nets. At first, they may have thought, who does that stranger think he is telling us how to fish? But then they thought soon, well, what have we got to lose? It's just one more cast. So they cast on the other side of the boat. And you know the story. They cast on the right side and caught so many fish 
that their neck could barely pull them in. And when John sees what has happened, he looks to the shore, to the stranger, and he recognizes that it's Jesus. And he says, it's the Lord. And I love this. When Peter, the ringleader of all this new fishing enterprise, is so caught off guard when he sees the Lord, we're told that he puts on his outer garment, <laughs> just the opposite that we would usually do when we're going to jump in the water, and probably that's the way they fished in their shorts because it was hard work, puts on his outer garment because he wants to make sure that he honors the Lord as he his due respect to the master as he goes to him. And the other disciples follow the boat, pulling, follow in the boat, pulling in, pulling in the full net of fish. Again, like Peter and the other discouraged and disheartened disciples, Jesus seeks us out. He seeks us out wanting to rekindle the passion of what we once had. Maybe we don't recognize his appearance or his voice, but that doesn't stop him from encountering us in our areas of greatest need. Frankly, maybe we've left behind the mission statement which we once followed and in our impatience have taken off on our own journey. It doesn't deter Jesus, however. He knows your potential, and he's not going to give up on any of us. Finally, in verses 9 through 14, Jesus renews their call and vividly embodies his mission statement for them. Now, Peter and the others had to remember an incident that took place in Luke chapter 5. Remember that? At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when the crowds were so large that Jesus found himself being pushed out, he was on the shore there, and so he gets in Peter's boat. And remember what happens when he gets in Peter's boat? He teaches them, and the people were along the shore there, all along there, big mass of people. And when he's finished, he simply asks Peter to cast out into the deep to push out into the deep. And then he says to Peter, throw down your nets. And Peter says, hey, we fished all night long and we haven't caught anything. Jesus said then, put your nets down on this side of the boat. They do, and they are amazed. And that they catch, just like this last, the one we just read, a large number of fish. And it's at that point that Jesus, as he meets them on their own turf, that he gives them a sign that speaks so loudly to them that Peter falls down and says, I am a sinner. And the rest of the disciples are amazed at the wonder of what Jesus has done. And it's at this point, he says, don't be afraid, Peter. From now on, you're going to be fishers of men. He gives him his mission statement. At that point, they take the boats in and they begin to follow Jesus. Do you see how this event in this post-resurrection appearance, as they're basking in the light of the resurrection, is Jesus calling them anew? And it must have brought back that memory of what happened three years ago as Jesus recreated the wondrous event when Peter began to follow Jesus for the first time. There is a sense in which Jesus is renewing that call just at the right time for Peter. Next, Jesus vividly embodies the mission statement that he has for them. 
much like he did when he washed his disciples' feet just before that celebration of the Passover in the upper room, Jesus tenderly serves his beleaguered, disappointed, disheartened disciples. He serves them a sumptuous breakfast after they'd worked all night long. Just as Jesus tenderly serves them by meeting their needs and nurturing them, so it's their mission to do the same. So what's happening here? Peter and the other disciples are being called to be fishers of people once again. And the net is large enough for all kinds of people. It's interesting. Did you notice that John mentioned 153 fish? Well, St. Jerome says that there were 153 varieties of fish at the time. Now, I may, that may be stretching it a little, but what he's trying to say is it's big enough for all of us. God wants to bring all people to himself throughout the whole world. They win people to faith in Jesus by meeting their needs and by nurturing them just as they've seen Jesus do for them. That's their mission statement as followers of Jesus. Now, next week, we're going to continue that passage, continue that breakfast on the beach as Jesus zeroes in on Peter at the end of that breakfast. In my mind, this encounter with the risen Lord has great ramifications for you and for me today, especially if we're disheartened and we're doubting our mission. Jesus, the risen Lord, wants to renew our call, wants to renew our mission statement to follow his example by meeting the needs of people nurturing people to point them to a faith in him. I want to kind of close with this story from an Australian writer, John Dixon, in his book, The Best-Kept Secret of Christian Mission. I believe it serves as an example of what one way that maybe our mission statement should look like. He says, under God, my own conversion was the result of one person's willingness to embody the mission of Jesus to the one who was the friend of sinners. One of the relics of Australia's Christian heritage is a a once-a-week scripture lesson offered to in many state high schools. One of these scripture teachers, Glenda was her name, had the courage to invite my entire class to her home for discussions about God. That invitation would have gone unnoticed except she added, If anyone is hungry, I'll be making hamburgers, milkshakes, and scones. As I looked around the room at all my friends, all skeptics like me, I was amazed that this woman would open her home, her kitchen, to us. Some of the lads there were among the worst sinners in the school. One was a drug dealer and one a drug user and a dealer. One was a class clown and bully. One was a petty thief with a string of breaking and entering charges to his credit. I cannot figure Glenda out, he goes on to write. She was wealthy and intelligent. She had an exciting social life, married to one of Australia's leading businessmen. What was she thinking, inviting us for a meal and discussion? At no point was the teacher pushy or preachy. Her style was completely relaxed and incredibly generous. When her VCR was missing one day, 
She made almost nothing of it, even though she suspected, and quite reasonably, it was someone from the group who took it. For me, her open, flexible, generous attitude toward us sinners was the doorway into a new life of faith. She truly cared for us and treated us like friends, or or maybe better put, he says, treated us like sons. And as a result, over the course of that next year, she introduced several of us from that class to the ultimate friend of sinners, Jesus. Oh, dear friends, as we gather around this table, if you haven't done so recently, ask God to renew your call and your mission to care for the needs and nurture the people in your sphere of influence so that you can point them to Jesus. Let us pray. God, thank you for these moments together. Continue to speak to us as we have the privilege of gathering around this table of remembrance. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.